Good morning. We're continuing today our series in Mark, and uh, we're going to finish chapter four today. While you turn there, I just want to tell you that uh, I hope you enjoyed today's study as much as I did. So go ahead and turn in, the, in your Bibles to Mark chapter four. And we'll start with verse 35. <clears throat> Mark 4, 30. 435, the word of the Lord. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray and ask God to bless the sermon today. Heavenly Father, as we study your word together, this precious gift that you've given us, this picture of our Lord Jesus, in his ministry, asleep on the cushion in the rear of the boat. Help us to understand, Lord, more clearly who he is. Help us to see him for who he is. And help us to have solid ground on which to stand. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is kind of a fun passage, and I'm sure many of us have heard it preached before. By way of introduction, all I'm going to tell you today is to keep the question that we just read in your mind. The disciples asked this question at the end. They asked, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Keep that question in your mind as we go through the section today. Let's start with verse 35. On that day when evening had come. Matthew's gospel in chapter 7 tells us this is the same day that Jesus had been healing and teaching a large crowd. And potentially even the same day that Jesus had been teaching in the synagogue. He'd healed Peter's mother-in-law. He taught the crowd by the shore. He had healed a bunch of diseases, cast out demons. He met with the, the scribe and, and spelled out the cost to be his disciple and follow him. He went up on the mountain and appointed the apostles. He came back down the mountain and he taught parables. And all of this while there's a large crowd constantly thronging about him, demanding his attention. It was a busy day. 
to say the least. And now we've reached the evening. All of these details aren't perfectly clear from Mark, but what we do know for sure from our text today, we know for sure that it's been a very long day, full of ministry. We're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere near Peter's house, and it's the evening. Continuing in the verse, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. So the Sea of Galilee forms a natural border with the Gentile countries to the east. So why does he want to go across to the other side out of Jewish territory? Some people will tell you that he's going across specifically to seek out the demon-possessed man that we'll encounter in the next chapter so he can do battle with the demon and cast them into the pigs and destroy them. The Bible doesn't say that here. No, it tells us in the next verse why it is that he wants to go across. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd. The context it gives us is that they were leaving the crowd. Jesus wants a break from the large crowds of people. His fame has spread, and the Jews and the neighboring Gentiles know where he can be found. And they're flocking to him, even from hundreds of miles away. Jesus and the disciples had been using Peter's house as their home base. Enough that the Bible actually describes going there as going home. That's the phrase it uses, going home. So to leave the crowd and go across the sea to an area Jesus had not visited before, I think the motivation is pretty clear. Jesus wanted to be away from all the people for a while, where he can't be found by the large crowds. Continue in verse 36. They took him in the boat just as he was. We understand this to mean that they embarked without a lot of preparation. This was not a trip across the sea that they had been planning for. They didn't go into town first and make sure that they had enough food or prepare the boat for extra seaworthiness. Since we're near Peter's house, this is in all likelihood Peter's boat. He would have had a boat that would be used to traverse the water within yelling distance of the shore. We even see that in John chapter 21. This very thing happening after the resurrection. Peter has gone home. Seven of the disciples are together, and they don't know what to do next. So Peter says, hey, guys, I'm going to go fishing. And they're not having any success. And Jesus calls to them from the shore. Hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And then they catch more fish than they know what to do with. It's, it's pulling the boat down, right? Let me tell you a little bit more about the boat. This boat, probably Peter's boat, would have been 25 to 30 feet long, maybe seven or eight feet wide, and four to five feet deep. So it's kind of a, a long, narrow, shallow boat, like a Viking boat. Have you ever seen like a movie with Vikings in it? It could hold a dozen people or more. Archaeologists actually discovered a boat dated to this period that would likely be the exact same kind of boat used by the local fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. If you want to find out more about it, you can go look it up later. Let me tell you a little more about it. It would have had a single mast and a sail 
and oars for four to six guys to be able to row if the wind wasn't an option that day. And the Sea of Galilee was eight miles across to the other side. Peter, being a fisherman, and the Jews not having much dealings with Gentiles, it's unlikely that Peter had used his boat for this type of trip very often, if ever. If you remember not that long ago, Jesus had called the disciples away from being fishermen. So the boat probably hadn't even been used for fishing lately. For the last few weeks or months, it had been used as a pulpit to teach the large crowds. So they hadn't planned a trip like this across the Sea of Galilee. They didn't have supplies. They hadn't prepared the boat ahead of time. Maybe even as seasoned sailors and fishermen, the guys are a little bit uneasy about this sudden unplanned trip across the sea. Continuing in verse 36, other boats were with him. Do you remember how we explained how they would find an area where the shore formed a natural amphitheater and they would use the boat as a pulpit with the people sitting around in a semicircle? One commentator tells us that these other boats were, in all likelihood, people who wanted better seats to be closer to Jesus. Remember the theme of how they would crowd around him everywhere he went? So he got into a boat to give himself some distance from the people in order to be able to minister to them more effectively. And some of them said to themselves, if he's getting into a boat, I'm going to get into a boat too. That way I can be closer to him. I can hear him better, maybe even touch him. If Jesus wants a little rest and a break from the crowds, he needs to go where even those boats are not going to go. Why wouldn't they follow him across the sea? Why wouldn't they follow him across the sea? Keep that in your mind for a minute. We'll elaborate on it in a little bit. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. I'm reading the English Standard Version here, but some other translations give us a little bit clearer picture. The word already in our translation is a little bit awkward. What it's telling us is that it happened very fast. The boat started filling up with the water incredibly quickly. It's on the verge of sinking. The King James even says, it was now full, almost past tense. You know, they're in the middle of the sea, three or four miles from the shore. As fishermen, I'm sure they knew how to swim. But even an elite swimmer doesn't plan to swim four miles without a little training, right? No, they realized here that they're in danger of sinking and drowning. The disciples think that they're going to die. That's, that's the picture. They think they're going to die. Verse 38, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus is in the back of the boat, asleep. And they wake him up and they ask, Don't you care that we're about to die? Consider the Matthew account, where it adds a little bit more detail. They wake Jesus up and they ask him to save them. They say, Save us, Lord. We're perishing. We're dying. Luke's account tells us that the waves were raging. Can you hear the panic? Can you hear the fear in their voices? Can you see how afraid they were? 
Why were they so afraid? Let's give a little backdrop so we can understand their fear better. To an ancient Jew, the sea is a very fearful place. Karen remembers from our suffering class. We talked about the sea quite a bit. In Jewish lore, the sea is full of monsters and teeming creatures. Even from Genesis 1, the Hebrew language used to describe the teeming creatures that God filled up the sea with can be understood by ancient Jews not to include just fish, but also serpents, including great and terrible creatures like the Leviathan found in Job. The sea is a place of mystery, dread, and superstition. To Jews, it's the place where the malevolence of the world and the corruption of nature is concentrated. Their culture might think of the sea the way that we think of a haunted house or a cursed graveyard, a cursed place where a mysterious evil lives, a place to avoid, or at the very least, a place not to mess with. There's even a personification of this malevolence mentioned a number of places in the scripture. I thought this was really fun, so I just want to divert for a few minutes. I think it's going to be worth it, and I think you'll also really enjoy it. I know I did. Let's take a look at the personification of this evil that lives and lurks in the sea. It's a sea monster, a sea serpent, and it has a name. God calls it, the Bible calls it Rahab, Rahab. There's a Rahab that we're probably familiar with a little more, and that's the prostitute who hid the Hebrew spies in her house in Jericho. But that's not who we're talking about. Those two are not, these two things are not related. No, this Rahab that we're talking about now, this sea serpent, is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. We'll read a few of them in a minute. The name Rahab translated from Hebrew means to act like a storm, to act boisterously, to bluster, to make wind and waves. It can also refer to an attitude of arrogance or insolence to storm against. Has anybody here ever had a toddler? <laughs> Storming, blustering in arrogance and insolence? None of you, just me? Either way, that attitude is Rahab. That's Rahab. That's what that means. So let's read a few scriptures about God's interactions with Rahab. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to go through these quickly. In Job 26, starting with verse 12, it's talking about God. It says, by his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his breath, the skies were cleared. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Psalm 74, verse 13, the psalmist is talking to God, and he says, You divided the sea by your strength. You break the heads of the dragons in the waters. Isaiah 51, 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Wake up as in days past, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced through the dragon. The name Rahab is also, poetically, a descriptor for ancient Egypt, the oppressor of God's people, and specifically to describe Pharaoh. From Ezekiel 29, Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. You see the arrogance again? You might have been wondering earlier why we read the passage about Israel crossing the Red Sea as our scripture reading to open the service. Do you see it now? You know more broadly, the sea serpent is not just Egypt, but generally understood by the Jews as the enemies of God and God's people. For an ancient Jew, traversing the sea is to tempt fate. Can you see maybe why the other boats wouldn't follow them? Even a person who isn't superstitious will avoid this type of thing most of the time, won't they? And now specifically for the disciples, to get caught traversing the sea in a fierce windstorm is to come up against the mysterious, malevolent evil in the world, the ancient evil, the enemy of God's people. And they don't have any supplies, maybe not even all their tackle. And they didn't prepare for seaworthiness. And all they have with them is an exhausted Jesus who is so tired He's sleeping right through the fierce windstorm and the water that's about to sink the boat. I want to talk about Jesus' humanity. Up to this point, what have the disciples seen during Jesus' ministry? We just talked about the extremely busy day that he's had. Do you think this was an uncommon day during Jesus' ministry? I'm sure every single day wasn't like this. But many of them had to be with crowds of thousands of people following him constantly, not even being able to eat. We've all been through seasons like this, sometimes to a lesser degree, but we can relate. That semester in college where you took six classes at once against the advice of your peers, the military deployment where you didn't sleep more than two hours at a time for a week or a month, the half a year of waking up in the night to feed your newborn and make sure they're safe, fed, comforted at the cost of your own rest. I know all the moms here can relate to that. Most of us dads too. Most or all of us have had a time like this in our lives. At the very least, we've observed others having times like this. And when we observe someone going through a time like this, Don't we admire them? They almost seem superhuman, don't they? And yet deep down, we all know at some point, they will get tired. They will run out of energy. They will need rest. The disciples have seen him ministering to thousands upon thousands, day after day, almost tirelessly, They've seen him get up very early to go and pray to the Father. They've seen him stay up into the night teaching and healing and loving everyone around him. Yet Jesus' humanity gives him need for sleep and rest. His body and his mind and his very human heart had human limits, just like ours. His energy was drained. Think of how physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausting this would be for any of us. His human body needs rest. His human heart has the emotions of a human heart. Otherwise, why does he weep when his friend Lazarus dies in John 11? 
Why does he marvel at the unbelief of the people in his hometown? In Mark chapter 6, as truly God, he foreknew those same people would reject him. And yet, as a man, he experienced amazement when they did. We can even see anger when Jesus uses very strong language against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, with exclamation points. He didn't deliver this speech with a smile on his face. Now, we have to be careful here, because this is something we have to get right. I want to give you a clear teaching. Right now, this part of the text in Mark is highlighting Jesus' humanity, the limits of his human body and his human mind, the emotional exhaustion of being in constant ministry. This is a clear picture of his humanity. If you've never understood what it meant to see Jesus as fully human, see it here. Why does he have to be fully human? From the Heidelberg Children's Catechism, why must the Redeemer be fully human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the law of God and suffer the punishment for human sin. Hebrews 4.15 gives us the understanding of this. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's right. Isn't it easy for us to excuse our sin due to our human weaknesses? Don't we do that pretty often? I was up all night and I didn't get any sleep and that's why I'm mistreating you right now. Here's one from me. I'm a veteran. I've got post-traumatic stress and the fireworks are going off in my neighborhood so it's not my fault if I lose my temper with my kids. We might make these excuses but we know in our hearts that we're not measuring up to what God's law requires. We're not measuring up to what a true love of God and love of neighbor would exhibit. Jesus had the same weaknesses as a fully human person, just like you and me, because he was. And yet he kept the whole law of God and all that it requires. Let's go back to the text. Verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Let's understand this rebuke. The word for rebuke does not carry a connotation of force. He's not trying to convince or coerce the wind into obeying him. No, the rebuke has an authority in itself. Like when a parent disciplines their child and rebukes them. I think too often we build our mental picture of these things from movies and dramatizations. So we imagine Jesus kind of standing up, gathering his breath to loudly shout at the wind, right? And he's got to raise his arms so that he might better command it and, and gesture at it. This rebuke does not carry any of that. It's a simple command. It's like the authority that we talked about before a few weeks back. It has to be obeyed. It has to. Who's seen what happens when a military commander walks into a room? The enlisted members and junior officers are doing their job, or maybe they're exercising, or maybe they're even maybe it's even the weekend and they're and they're having a 
a time of relaxation. Maybe they're even partying. Who knows? But then the commander walks in, and whoever notices him first says what? Attention on deck. And everybody stops what they're doing, rises to their feet, stands at attention. And they wait for what? His instruction, his order. They will stand that way forever until he says, at ease. When Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind, he's calling it to attention. Heed me, wind. I'm here. Heed me, waves. Be at peace. Attention on deck. The commander is here. To put it another way, he exercises his authority over it and disciplines it like he would a child. When your child respects your authority and they understand your authority, do you have to raise your voice? No. He didn't have to raise his voice. He didn't have to yell. He didn't have to put up his hands and make gestures. He didn't have to threaten. All he had to say was, wind, waves, be still. Pastor Rob taught on this passage once, and he liked to use the example of a child in Awana who had acted this scene out in a skit. And this four-year-old child understood this exactly. When it came time for Jesus to rebuke the waves, do you know what the little boy did? He stood up and he simply went like this. He understood the authority that Jesus had. Continuing in verse 39, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. There was a great calm. The great calm here is descriptive. The word used in our translation here says great, but the translation of the same word in the New American Standard tells us that it was perfectly calm. It was perfectly calm. You know, the word for calm has the same root word as the word for milk. It has the connotation of gentleness. Gentleness. It's so gentle, it's like a perfectly warmed bottle of milk. Gentle enough for a baby. Another translation of this word is tranquility. When you tranquilize a wild animal, what does it do? It goes to sleep. It's no danger to anyone. This raging storm, this wild, petulant storm full of pride and bluster, immediately obeyed him and calmed. It went to sleep. The storm didn't reduce. The wind didn't die down a little bit, but it's still going. No, it disappeared. The waves didn't get smaller. No, the sea became flat, like glass. It was tranquil. It was at peace. There's no danger anymore. Verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? When he asks them why they're afraid, another way of asking this would be, why do you have this cowardice? Why do you have cowardice? Why do you tremble in fear for your lives? Why are you cowering? And then he continues, have you still no faith? Let's understand this faith because we often misunderstand it. We often think of faith as this kind of abstract feeling that's an unfounded trust, 
a belief that we're desperately holding on to despite the circumstances or the evidence to the contrary. Maybe an atheist comes up to you and he, and he says, mocking, there's no God and you can't prove it. And you reply, well, I have faith that there is. Isn't that how we often think of it? That's not what he's talking about. This word faith is used many times in the New Testament and it's translated lots of ways. One of the ways it's translated is in Acts 17 where Paul is preaching in Athens and he uses the same word to tell the crowd that God has given proof of the gospel. By raising Christ from the dead, God gave proof of the gospel by raising Christ from the dead. He doesn't say faith, he says proof. Another translation is assurance. It's easy for us to see in our mind's eye, Jesus standing up and bellowing at the wind, peace, be still. And then he kind of angrily turns towards his disciples and rebukes them as well. And why don't you have any faith yet? But is that how we know him to be? No. This is gentle too. There's an earnest plea from Jesus here. With the wind now non-existent and the sea as still as glass, Jesus quietly turns and says, Don't you have enough proof yet? Don't you? Do you not yet believe? This faith also has a commitment to it. That's why we say a good faith negotiation or a good faith business dealing. It signals our intention to go forward. Jesus is also asking, is your commitment faltering because you're afraid? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. Now look here. This great fear that filled them now is distinct from the cowardice they were experiencing just moments ago. This fear that has come over them at the end is not cowardice in the face of chaos. No, this is a different word for fear. This word is the same concept we talked about in Deuteronomy a few months ago. This is dread. This is a proper regard for power and authority. This is the fear of the Lord. This is what God uses to describe a heart that has a proper understanding of him and postures itself in worship. Fear of God. They're not full of cowardice anymore. They're full of dread and wonder. They're awestruck as it starts to dawn on them just who it is that's in the boat with them. The verse concludes, they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? By this point, the question is almost rhetorical, isn't it? Because these were Jews and they already knew the answer. Jeremiah 31, 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, who sets in order the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Psalm 135, starting verse 6. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 147, 15 through 18. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. 
He stirs up breezes and the waters flow. Let's go back to Isaiah 51 again, starting with verse 9. You can turn there. Go ahead and turn to verse 9 of Isaiah 51. We're going to spend a little time here. Isaiah 51, starting with verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? There's the Red Sea again. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of a man who's made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. Take a break here. Do you see this fear of the oppressor of God's people, cowardice before something that isn't God? Do you see the example of this fear in the disciples? God says they have cowardice because they have forgotten something. What did they forget? They forgot him. Continue in the passage. And where's the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Now I'm going to make a claim here that some of you might not have heard before. And so I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to go and do the study on your own afterward. And I also want to reassure you that I'm not inventing a new doctrine here, okay? I'm not brave enough to do that. But you just might not have heard it before. But at the beginning of this passage in verse 9 in Isaiah 51, who's the writer addressing? To whom or what is he speaking? Can you look at it? Do you know that when the Old Testament describes the power of God in the arm of the Lord, it's a reference to the pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Did you know that? Just one proof so you can believe me for now, but I still want you to go study it on your own. In Genesis 3, who did God promise would crush the serpent? The offspring of the woman, who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Who do we see destroying a serpent in Isaiah 51? The arm of the Lord. Let's try to pull all this together. At the beginning, I asked you to keep the question in your mind. Who then is this? We've seen in the Mark passage on clear display the plain humanity of Jesus Christ. All you have to do to see his humanity is look. He got hungry. 
He needed rest from work. Constant emotional toil, being around needy people, not getting enough sleep, all of these exhausted him, just as they would exhaust you or me. And he took the opportunity to rest when he needed it. What's the difference between his humanity and ours? There is no difference. The difference is in his person. In his humanity, he did not sin. He didn't treat others badly when he was tired. He didn't snap at them. He didn't raise his voice and he wasn't quick to irritation. He didn't have a short temper and blame it on his lack of rest. He was tempted in every aspect as we are. And yet, he did not sin. But he's not just merely human. If there was any question before, there isn't now. The wind and the sea do not obey anyone other than the God who sits in heaven and laughs and does whatever he pleases, the Lord Jehovah. The Lord of hosts is his name. The arm of the Lord, the head crusher, the one who pierces the serpent. He was there when the sea and the land were formed. He formed them. He was there when he made man in his own image. He was there when the Israelites were trapped against the Red Sea, and he's the one who made the wind and sea obey him so that his people could cross it on dry land. He's the one who closed the waters against Pharaoh and his army and utterly cast them into the deep. He's the one who fought against sin and death itself and defeated it at Calvary. He's the one who's coming again on the last day with a sword to judge the living and the dead and finally crush the serpent once and for all and throw him into hell forever. Do you know that even now, it's by his power that all things are held together continually? The atoms would not hold together if he did not will it to be so. This is the same Jesus that was in the boat, asleep on the cushion. So if you understand that Jesus became human so that he could live the life that you ought to live and die the death that you ought to die so that you might inherit a righteous standing before God that shouldn't belong to you and an eternal life that, is, that, that a tainted and unrighteous soul could never receive, my question to you is this. Have you seen enough yet? To believe? If you've only started coming recently for our Mark study, you've been with him for four chapters now. Maybe you've been here a lot longer than that. He doesn't want you to have a faith in him that is an unfounded belief in something that can't be proven. No, believe it. This is the proof. If you hear this and the Spirit of God is telling you that it's true, Believe it, because it is true. And then go read the story again and believe it, because it's true. He wrote it for you to believe. And if you've already believed it, do not cower in the face of an uncertainty or a difficulty or even a physical danger. Do not cower in the face of men or what man may do to you. He's with you. He says to you, I've covered you 
in the shadow of my hand, the same hand that established the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. And you are my people. Let's sing our last song. <laughs>